Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and answering your questions. This episode was requested by Tyler Smith, who feels that he may not need Kubernetes just yet. Tyler has a few questions about Docker and Docker Swarm. So Andrea Luzardi, former Docker Swarm lead, joins us today to answer them. We talk about the Docker Swarm beginnings, some of the challenges that it faced, and what Andrea's recommendation is for Tyler's journey with Docker Swarm. After dedicating four years of his professional career to Docker Swarm, Andrea is the best person that I know to talk about the subject. And guess what? The same thing happened now as it did at KubeCon 2015. Sam pointed to Andrea. It will all make sense in the first five minutes. This one is going to be fun. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping her episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by NetFoundry, the creator of OpenZD. OpenZD is the only open source way to embed zero trust networking into your app. This gives you unprecedented control and security. Give your app superpowers using an OpenZD SDK and a few lines of code, or use their tunnelers to spin up zero trust networking in minutes across any cloud or device. Never face the horrors of VPNs, DNS, inbound ports, or complex firewall rules. No networking engineering skills are needed. OpenZD is trusted by developers at Microsoft, Oracle, Ramco, and more. And if you don't want to host your own OpenZD, use the NetFoundry SaaS, which includes free forever tiers for up to 10 endpoints, so you can test things out for yourself at the netfoundry.io slash changelog to learn more and get started. Again, netfoundry.io slash changelog. or so ago, I was asking my Dagger team, who is a good person to, do, to talk Docker Swarm with? And Sam, he turned around and he pointed to the person that was sitting, sitting next to him and said, <laughs> Andrea was the lead engineer on Docker Swarm. So maybe talk to him. Welcome, Andrea, to ship it. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So um, before this episode, I did like a bit of research. And uh, I found so many good presentations, recorded ones, slides about Docker Swarm. So you did an excellent job promoting it, I have to say. This was 2015, 2016, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, 15, 16, 17 also. Yeah, it was a couple of years for sure. Why are we talking about Docker Swarm? That is a great question that I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking. Tyler Smith, one of uh, our listeners, was asking about... Let's have an episode about Docker Swarm, which prompted me to ask around and see who would be the best person to talk Docker Swarm with. So Tyler wrote, I use Docker Compose in development and production on a single machine. Tyler, I hope it's not the same machine. <laughs> if you've learned anything, please tell me it's not the same machine. <laughs> While I'd like to explore scaling my apps, I feel like I might not need Kubernetes yet. I would also like to keep leveraging my Docker knowledge. And he has the following questions. Before we cover the questions, I am so curious to find out from Andrea about the Docker Swarm story, how it started. Let's start there. How did the Docker Swarm start? The idea, the concept, the implementation? What did that look like? 
Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. It's it's actually a very long story, so <laughs> I have to go back a, a few years. So it all started with DotCloud, which was you know the company behind Docker at the time. Mm -hmm. So like we have to go back to 2011 actually, and at the time, <laughs> if you wanted to deploy an application, you had two choices. So either you manage your own machines, like provision a cluster either on bare metal or with EC2, and mm -hmm. kind of like figure out a way to provision your services manually or like using Salt or Ansible. Or if you're lucky enough to use Ruby on Rails and Postgres, then your answer was Heroku. But there was nothing between, like if you were, if you happen to be using like Django and MySQL, then you were out of luck. Yeah, you had to provision like your own cluster. And so that was the, the, the premise behind .cloud was that it was like Heroku, but it was any language with any database and mm -hmm. turns out that it's pretty hard to do because you know now you have to handle a bunch of different languages on every machine with different you know versions per language and that's not something simple to do also at the time it was impossible on ec2 to run vms because you were already in a vm so that's right. where containers came in and we discovered you know c groups and then spaces and we kind of like started to create like our own container runtime internally mm -hmm. and that's basically the ancestor of docker but there was no tooling around that so we had to build our own like container builder which eventually yeah. became docker build we had to build our own registry <laughs> we had to build our own load balancer because load balancers were meant for machine to machine but not mm. machine to container so it's actually sam alba that created like uh something called hipachi like the apache for hipsters <laughs> that wow, was like okay. a, <laughs> a load an http load balancer for containers and and finally we had to put those containers into machines. And so we created like a container orchestrator internally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we had this entire stack with basically what, you know, eventually became Docker, the registry, Docker Hub, Docker Build, and Docker Swarm. So we had all this platform back in 2011 and a few years go by and then Heroku now has build packs to, yeah. you know, build like any language. And so they, they were getting like a lot of attention from the community. And we thought like, that was pretty cool. Like, why don't we open source the core of what we have starting by the container runtime? And so yeah. that's where Docker came to be in 2013. And so that's kind of the, the long history behind that. And so in 2013, we open sourced Docker. And about a year after in 2014, we reached, you know, 1.0 that was announced at the first DockerCon. And, you know, people started to, you know, have questions like how do I do this or that? And for instance, some of the questions were, were like, okay, now I have a container, but I need to, you know, run my entire application. And people were starting to do some hacks around that, like, you know, shoving an entire init system, like system D inside the container to run multiple mm. processes. And we were trying to push like a, a new approach of just running a single service per container. And so basically having multiple containers like microservices. Yeah. And then the question arose like, how do I, you know, I can Docker run one container, but how do I do that with multiple containers? And so that year we released uh, Docker Compose to, you know, be able to, to describe oh, yes. the app. And then the, the following question was like, okay, now I've composed, but like I'm running this on a laptop, how to run this on a different machine. And the, I don't think at the time there was any Terraform or at least it was not popular enough. So we released Docker Machine, 
Mm-hmm. Like, so now you have Compose, you have Machine, and you can deploy your containers to like one machine. But now, you know, if you start three machines, like how do you manage that? And mm-hmm. that's where Docker Swarm came to be. And we were not talking about orchestration back then. It was much simpler than that. It was like, we have this very popular Docker API that works with one machine. How do we make this API multiple machine? And so Docker Swarm was this very simple API multiplexer that was completely stateless. You could join like a couple of machines together. It would just, you know, boot up, scan the state and give you the same, you know, Docker PS API and see the entire cluster with the machines and Docker run would just pick one machine, mm-hmm. Docker restart and all of that basically just made it multi-machine. And so that's pretty much the, <laughs> the how Docker Swarm came to be. Okay. So... It was this multiplexer. Okay, so hang on. First of all, Sam was a hipster. I still can't get over that. <laughs> well, <laughs> no way. I can't imagine Sam. <laughs> yeah, it was a Ludmancer for hipsters. <laughs> right. Okay. I see. Okay. I have to ask you where you got the inspiration from. Maybe we very quickly say, hey, Sam, can you join this and like answer this question? But no, no, no. I'm going to ask it offline that maybe if someone's curious, we can share the answer via Twitter or something similar. <laughs> We're very, not very good at, at naming stuff. <laughs> yeah. I thought Solomon was the hipster. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> he was obviously very, very popular and he was very excited about Docker. And that's actually how I, how I got into Docker, you know, like that, that excitement and that like, the story in that you can take it from a really simple, like from your local machine and you can go into production and you have something very similar in production. It's the same familiar API. I really like that. But you're right. There was like, so how do I scale this from one machine to multiple machines? And when I had to do that, say, okay, well, it kind of makes sense. It's nice that I can join them, but what happens afterwards? How do I do upgrades? How do I handle my stateful stuff, like my database, my PostgreSQL? What happens with the volume? Like, will it move around? What about the whole plugins where, for example, I want to stream those logs to a log aggregator and metrics, and then you have to have all the questions like start coming out of that. So I'm wondering, Andrea, how did you go from this Docker Swarm, which was just a multiplexer, to a system which needs to handle distributed config? which needs to handle networking across multiple hosts and rebalancing things and the volumes moving, basically all the things that Kubernetes does. How did you go from that simple multiplexer to something more? What did that journey look like? So we started with the multiplexer, which released in 2015. And then, you know, the community came back with questions. Well, basically everything you said, like, uh, okay, now I have two containers running, but how do they talk to each other? And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we attach storage? And Swarm at the time, like we built it with the same principle as Docker. Like it must be, you know, good DX, simple mm-hmm. to install, simple to, to use. And Swarm basically followed that by being, you know, stateless and using the same Docker API, but realized that the Docker API, which was designed for a single machine, didn't cut it anymore. Like we needed something. And that's where Swarm mode, so the, the internal component Swarm kit came, came to play. Mm-hmm. The idea was twofold. One, we're going to have a dedicated API for multiple machines. So that's the Docker service API that contain, you know, more hooks 
for multi-machines, like what's the replication strategy, how many instances you want, do you want to pin this container to a specific machine, and so on and so forth. And then also having state, finally, like you cannot do you know, complex cluster management without state. But what made it hard is that we didn't want to have to you know, set up you know, a NetCD cluster, like a three-machine NetCD cluster to manage like one production machine. So so that was really the tricky part. And so that, that's where most of the engineering went was like we started to basically uh, have a raft implementation. So we took like etcd's core raft implementation and bundled that into SwarmKit so that nodes could just, you know, talk to each other and reach consensus. And then we created this uh, Docker service API on top. And in addition to that, we pushed also other parts of Docker, you know, to become modular. So we had mm-hmm. Docker networking modules, Docker volume, you know, modules, and kind of like started to have multi-machine built into that. So mm-hmm. that happened, you know, I think Swarm was stable in 2015 and probably like a few months later, like uh, end of 2015, we started to work like on this new mode, which we announced, I think it was DockerCon in 2016, so around June. So it took last seven or eight months to to come to that. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's how we went from a simple multiplexer to a full-fledged orchestrator. At the same time, you know, there, there was Kubernetes that was available, but it was kind of, you know, hard to you know, set up and manage and use. You know, there's the 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 very famous documentation by Kelsey, like Kubernetes the hard way. But oh, at the yes. time, at the time it was actually, you know, Kubernetes the only way because there was no managed service, there was nothing. So you had to jump to many hoops to get a Kubernetes cluster up and running and wanted to provide, you know, something simpler, not the only way of doing it, but from what we're hearing from the community, we just wanted something, you know, for small size clusters. We didn't want to manage 10,000 machines. Most applications at the time were like pretty simple because Docker was not really great at multi-tenancy, like on a mm-hmm. single machine. Like you could not have multiple customers fighting for the same CPU because isolation was not great. So people were using managing, you know, a many small cluster rather than like a, you know, a hundred machines cluster. And so at that time, the strategy made sense. So you mentioned Kelsey Hightower, and I'm very glad that you did. Not only we had him recently, and he mentioned Kubernetes the hard way, how famous it became, and you know how many people drew inspiration from it. But he's also the same person that introduced you and Sam at KubeCon North America 2015 when you talked about Docker Swarm and Kubernetes. That was the title of the talk, Docker Swarm and Kubernetes. And what Kelsey said is, it's the first talk where he knows that the boss made someone else present, <laughs> not someone else, the boss made someone present at the conference because Sam was presenting with you and at the time he, he, he was your boss. Now, I'm wondering if the same thing happened now because I asked who knows <laughs> Docker Swarm and Sam went, Andrea does. So he basically volunteered you for ship it. <laughs> oh, damn it, Sam, you got it again. <laughs> so uh, one thing that you mentioned at that conference in the talk was how Docker Swarm 1.0, how you benchmarked it to a thousand nodes and how it could run 30,000 containers. What was that like to benchmark that, to realize the scale that it could reach? Because I'm pretty sure at the time, Kubernetes was not able to run 1,000 nodes in 2015. Yeah, 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 for sure. That was actually like a very interesting talk. As I said, like the goal again was to make, you know, running on multiple machines easy. And so Mm -hmm. we had, you know, Swarm had a built-in orchestrator, but the goal was not to push orchestrator like everywhere. Like we mm-hmm. actually had support for Docker Swarm backed by Mesos. 
And the reason we were at that the first like KubeCon was to announce that Docker Swarm supported like running containers on Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Like we just wanted to have you know the Docker API simple enough. But if you wanted to run like a Kubernetes cluster or a Mesos cluster, so be it. Like you could you know point Swarm to your Kubernetes cluster and just you know do a Docker run and, and it worked. Mm -hmm. So the built-in orchestrator that was just for you know if you didn't have you know neither Kubernetes nor Mesos, well we had a simple one baked in. That was the goal. Turns out the built-in one was so simple because like again like stateless, just a multiplexer that when we tried to you know we're wondering like, what's the scale. People are saying oh it's it's so simple like will we handle like ten machines, twenty machines? So we just fired up a thousand nodes cluster and we're running commands against it just to you know see. How it would go and it, mm -hmm. it, it didn't break at all so Worked that was well. not the intended purpose i think internal uh, automation we're regularly pushing it i think to 20 machines that was like the, the target mm -hmm. we didn't think like at the time anyone would you know run it above 20 because again like multi-tenancy was not great so many clusters for one company rather than a gigantic cluster also it was you know in 2015 ish so people are just migrating to containers like they didn't have their entire infrastructure on containers maybe they had most of the machines were managed manually and then maybe mm. they started to have like one cluster on the side just for containers and it was like more or less per team or per service I guess the 1,000 machines happen. It was a happy incident, but not by design. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even now, to be honest, what people recommend is run small Kubernetes clusters. Don't run big ones. It's an anti-pattern. Mm -hmm. You'll start hitting various issues around DNS, around networking, around scheduling, you know, if you run two large containers. So this is a known thing even today, and it's not recommended. Yeah. Not like weird things happen in large clusters. You know, yeah, that's yeah. That's what people are saying. The ones that tried and failed. And b beside the, the, the technical challenges, there's also like simple challenges like cost management. Like because uh, most of the building is per machine, if you start to mix everything together, you don't even know like, hey, how much like this production service is costing us. Now I yeah. think there's, there's tooling that can, you know, take a deep dive inside Kubernetes to figure out like, cost per service, but at the time, like you were built by machine. So if your entire company was running a single cluster, you would have like one invoice and then good luck yeah. figuring out like <laughs> why the yeah. cost was increasing. Yeah, that's a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. Change 
So I'm going to switch to one of Tyler's questions. And one of the first questions that he asks is what are the differences between Docker Swarm and Docker Swarm mode? Okay, I think we briefly touched on that before, but the transition from the two was like from going from a stateless multiplexer to an actually full-fledged orchestrator. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it's a naming fail, like it's so similar, like there's only the extra word like mode, but they have nothing to do. Like one was a, you know, a multiplexer that would run as a separate container, whereas warm mode was this, you know, stateful thing built in into Docker that, you know, had a, a, a new API, like the services API. And even right. though it was baked in, it was off by default, like it wouldn't like there was another goal, like if you don't use Swarm, you just install, like Swarm mode, sorry. If you just install Docker, the memory footprint is the same. But then okay. you would just type, you know, Docker Swarm in it, and then it would just boot up the, the, the internal process. So yeah, same name, entirely different project. Okay, so Docker Swarm mode is when you run Docker Swarm in it. Yeah, that turns on the Swarm mode, which boots mm. up the internal like Swarm kit. So we had, you know, this naming scheme with like build kit, Swarm kit, VPN kit, and all the kits. Mm -hmm. And those are basically things that run inside Docker, like build kit that powers Docker build, and then mm -hmm. Swarm kit that powers like Docker Swarm in it. So how do you go from Docker Swarm mode, Docker engine or Docker daemon, which runs in Swarm mode, how do you go from that to Docker Swarm? Is it just a matter of joining multiple Docker Swarm hosts? Is that it? Yeah, that's exactly it. You pick one machine, you do Docker Swarm in it, and then on mm -hmm. any other machine, you do Docker Swarm join and then the address of that machine. And they start to form a cluster and form, reach a consensus, join like the, the raft consensus and share yeah. network information and start replicating stuff. So that was the, the goal. Like it's a one command and you have a cluster. And that's what you want to be very careful uh, when it comes to consensus, when it comes to the number of nodes that you have. So always have an uneven number of nodes. I'm wondering how does Docker swarm like pairs, like two, for example, two nodes, how they reach consensus if they couldn't talk, like who would win, which side would win, yeah. <laughs> brain scenario. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, we, we put like a lot of engineering to make it easy, maybe too easy because then, you know, engineers are like, okay, this is easy, but like, how does it work? Because I want to mm -hmm. know. And the way it works behind is that it tries to pick like same default. So when you init, you run like in a single uh, leader mechanism, like you have a mm -hmm. single raft node. When you join another node, that one is also, it's just a, uh, it's not part of raft. It's just a node set to run containers. Mm -hmm. When the third joins, then they form like a raft oh. cluster. Interesting. Okay. And when the fourth and so on, like there's no more than three raft basically members because there, that's too much. You could actually change in the config like between three, five, or seven. Above seven, it doesn't make sense. It's too slow and there's yeah. too many like uh, edge cases. But internally, like you could configure a number, but if only it was three, the first three machines to join part of raft, the other ones could just run containers and that's it. Interesting. Okay. And would the Raft members move around? So let's imagine you have five containers, but you have only three members, part of the Raft cluster. Let's imagine that one node, the one which runs one member, dies. Would the Raft membership move around to one of the running nodes, which 
is just running containers. Is, is that how it would work? Yeah, actually, there were a couple of commands to manage that. There was Docker Swarm Promote and Docker Swarm mm -hmm. Demote. So Swarm would pick like three machines to be to decide what to do, you know, with with Raft, mm -hmm. the first three to join. But then we were not shifting consensus around because that's a risky operation. Like to shift consensus around, you either have to currently have consensus, like you cannot yeah. if the if there's a net split. Mm -hmm. There's one machine on the side and two on the other. You don't know, like, did the other two die or did a net split? And so we didn't want to change raft topology dynamically because that's very dangerous. But we provided tools for the operator basically to change membership status between the nodes with like promote and demote. So you would do like a Docker node list. You would see all the nodes. You would mm -hmm. see like which ones are part of raft and which one is currently like the, the leader node. And then you could, you know, promote some other nodes or demote others, and it would just figure it out dynamically. This brings back so many memories from years of discussion on the RabbitMQ team about quorum queues and how should Raft be implemented and what semantics it should have and which parts of Raft are safe. And uh, when you throw in the, the real world operational aspect, nodes getting overloaded, network splits, all sorts of nodes, nodes getting upgraded. What do you do then? There's so many hairy situations. And what you just mentioned just brought all that back. <laughs> you don't know what the right yeah. solution yeah. is. And users would say, end users would tell us, but why don't you fix this? And well, we can't. I say, no, no, of course, like you're lazy. No, no, <laughs> like you're not doing your job like properly enough. No, actually it's really hard. You know, and then by the time you like start talking now, it's it's just a bunch of excuses. So yeah, there was also some very tricky conversations uh, along that history. I think we can have time for one more question from Tyler, mm -hmm. and before we we go back to um, a slightly different topic, when might it make sense to use Docker with Swarm mode in production? That's one of the other things that Tyler was wondering. What would you say, Andrea? <laughs> Good question. I think it's very different today from what it was back then. I think my, my answer today would be like, you know, if we're asking me like, where would it make sense to use MySQL versus Postgres? I would just say, just use RDS, you know, just use a managed service. Mm -hmm. I think Swarm today is still one of the easiest way to manage your own cluster. If you want orchestration in containers, like it's, uh, it's simple enough to, to set up and, and operate. Although, I think, you know, managing your own cluster, you know, there's uh, use cases behind that, but by default, I would just encourage everyone to use like a managed service, could be like a managed Kubernetes cluster or even like a managed proprietary service like uh, Amazon, like AWS ECS mm -hmm. or anything basically where someone else, you know, gets paged when, when the, the management plane breaks and when the raft consensus algorithm breaks or it needs help. That's basically what you're saying. It's <laughs> exactly. hard enough. Yeah, to have someone to worry about that, which is what happens by default with Kubernetes, right? You don't even know there is such a thing because, I mean, the management plane just have an API to it and that's it. You're yeah. not concerned with the operation of the management plane. So that's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, unless it's it's part of your core business, I don't think you should be fiddling with, you know, raft consensus at 2 a.m., you know? Okay. So do you know if a managed Docker Swarm service exists today? So th there were a few incarnations of that. I think at some point, uh, AWS had a Swarm compatible service. So I think mm -hmm. they supported like with a specialized CLI, they could parse like a compose file and 
Docker Swarm supported to run like a, a, a compose file as a manifest file. So mm-hmm. AWS, there was this special CLI which would take a, a Swarm compatible file and convert it to, I think it was ECS or maybe something else. So you could, in a sense, okay. like use a managed Swarm, even though the implementation was not Swarm, but API compatible. I, I don't know if that's still around, but it used to be around. We used to discuss with the uh, AWS team, you know, things that would not work, you know, on that particular service would, you know, try and make the API compatible uh, as much as we could to make it like semi-managed, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics like extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. And by our friends at Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool, Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as the platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. So I remember in 2018 when we were thinking of migrating, or I was thinking about migrating from a Docker that we used to install with Ansible on Ubuntu and then convert it into Docker Swarm. And I think we only had one at the time. We converted to Docker Swarm to be able to use the API and whatnot. Or maybe I'm misremembering this part. Maybe we weren't using Docker Swarm. But anyways, we were basically managing our own Docker instance in production, and that was not fun. And in 2018, I thought, you know what? How about we pick an operating system that has Docker pre-installed and it manages all of this and upgrades and Docker upgrades and all that. So that's when we picked CoreOS. It came with Docker. It had a lot of the um, mounts were read-only. That was great. The upgrades were very nice in that you could like self-upgrade itself and, and we liked that. There are a couple of quirks there, but I was really excited about going to Docker Swarm. And that was 20, 2018? It must have been 2018 because... 
at the end of 2018, like for 2019, we went from Docker Swarm to Kubernetes. And that's something that Tyler is asking, should he just go to Kubernetes and uh, or should he use Swarm? Having used both, I liked like a lot of things that you mentioned. First of all, it's a managed service. So Kubernetes these days just get it as a managed service and you don't have to worry about like the little intricacies around, you know, the control plane, the worker nodes, all that stuff. So having a managed control plane is such an important thing. That was the first thing. The second thing was around the ecosystem. So we, the reason why we went to Kubernetes from Docker Swarm, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, was because we could all of a sudden install these things on Kubernetes and not have to worry about packages. So the value line moved up. We could get a Prometheus, for example, and we didn't have to worry how it comes from, how it gets wired, all those things. It was much, much easier. There was something like external DNS, which was very nice. So part of that, we stopped using Terraform. We went to Kubernetes. Of course, Kelsey told me that's a bad idea. Like, don't do that. You know, like you want a control cluster and then you want your workload cluster rather than mixing the two concerns, which, which is what we did and we still do today. So there's some food for thought for me and things to improve for sure. But the migration was fairly simple, I have to say, and it felt like it's a step in the right direction. So I'm wondering... Where do you sit when it comes to this, Andrea? Would you use Docker Swarm for production if it was managed? Would that be enough for you to pick Docker Swarm? Is it just like that managed part? Or would you go to Kubernetes? What would you pick and why? Yeah, I think it really depends on the use case. I've been using, for instance, like uh, myself in the past, I've been using uh, ECS to mm-hmm. kind of get a managed service without a little bit easier to use as a user, but really depends on what I'm trying to do. And if I, if I value, you know, porting from one cloud provider to, to another, for instance, mm-hmm. I think I would probably consider it, consider Swarm if I was running like a, a, an on-prem cluster or, you know, a cluster, a provision manually with machines, but I wouldn't do that. Like I think mm-hmm. unless, you know, I have some weird requirements about the machines or like it needs to be in a cage, a control or something like that. But mm-hmm. I think by default, you know, for regular, you know, web application, I would just use a managed service, whether it's Kubernetes, ECS or, or something else. Okay. Okay. I think one of the main reasons is about ecosystem and you know if i run into problems i want to be able to google the problems and you know hit you know some see some people that run into the same problems as me and so on and so forth so yeah so this makes me wonder what why do you think kubernetes became so popular over the years because at one point docker swarm was so much more advanced than kubernetes right and at one point as you mentioned you could run containers in kubernetes via docker swarm so in the way the integration was, you know, the other way around, you know, Kubernetes was running Docker engine for a long time and then the, the Docker shim was, was removed and, you know, the whole runtime change, the container runtime change, that was like a huge, huge deal. But at some point, Docker Swarm, I'm sure it was a great choice. And people say, Kubernetes, okay, it's a new thing, you know, not, not so unproven. And because you had Docker, right? And Docker was, was a great tool. And even to this day, you know, uh, a lot of people depend on it and it's just so easy. It's like the easiest thing. So I'm wondering at what point did Kubernetes, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say like was like starting to get maybe more popular and why? I mean, that, mm-hmm. that always fascinated me. I think we had the Kubernetes documentary. So 
I have a lot of like the Kubernetes story, but I'm missing the Docker and the Docker Swarm story. Yeah, I think it, the main reason behind that is that Swarm was about, you know, again, it started with a simple promise of you have one Docker machine and now you have multiple mm -hmm. machines and we're going to help you with that. Whereas Kubernetes is much more than running containers. It's this, you know, this set of API construct where like you can do a bunch of stuff on top. Running mm -hmm. containers is one thing you can do. And at the beginning was the, the main thing you could do, but it was very much extensible. Like it was easier for the ecosystem to plug into that, you know, for load balancers mm -hmm. to plug into that, to have a third parties plug into that. And so I think that really contributed for the ecosystem to kind of standardize on that. It was hard at the time if you wanted to, you know, swap something out of Swarm, you you had to make a PR against Swarm and, and do that. So it was hard for vendors basically to, to come in because also we didn't want to approve, you know, every single vendor PR that came in. Yeah. We call those like drive-by PRs where like a vendor would like drop their PR and, you know, it would be buggy like six months later, but they would never, you know, contribute resources to fix it. And so we're kind of, you know, solving one problem of running containers, whereas Kubernetes started to be this orchestration API, not not just orchestration, it was like a, a, a cloud API where like a bunch mm -hmm. of vendors could just standardize on that with a YAML file, come in, drop their controllers. And so I think that's the reason why Kubernetes became so popular. The thing to remember also at the time is that it was not, you know, Swarm versus Kubernetes. There were like many tools around, like you mentioned CoreOS, and for instance, CoreOS had Fleet to, you know, manage, you know, a bunch of containers. There was Nomad by HashiCorp, which is still around and, and works great as far as I know. There was Swarm, of course, there was Kubernetes, there was Mesos. Mesos. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was used by enterprises, like a lot of big companies were using that. And so Apple, I remember. Yeah. yeah, I think they were one of the biggest users of uh, Twitter also, like uh, mm -hmm. we're using Mesos. And so we had, it was a time where there were a bunch of tools for different needs, mm -hmm. Mesos for enterprises and Fleet, if you were like into the CoreOS kind of ecosystem, it maybe made sense. Uh, Nomad, you know, uh, for HashiCorp uh, made sense. And then Swarm, it's this built-in thing, simple to use. And then Kubernetes takes it like in a different approach where it's a, it's an API. But at the end of the day, like the ecosystem standardized so much that it kind of, you know, overshadowed all the other tools. But back in the day, like there were like five or six different tools and with many users in each and to each their own, you know, depending on the use case. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I, I, I forget about the other tools. You're right, they were there. I remember Mesos, I remember trying it and thinking, wow, this thing is really complex. At the time I was, I was in, into Cloud Foundry and I was like part of the Cloud Foundry ecosystem. And I liked that idea around like how simple it is compared to like, it was almost as, as simple as Heroku. I really liked that. There was Bosch, the whole like <laughs> management of like Cloud Foundry and all the services that you had, the stateful services. So there were some good things in that ecosystem, which, you know, I, I worked on for a bunch of years. And at one point that was the simplest thing. So you're right. There was like so many more things, but somehow Kubernetes just, you know, <laughs> eclipsed everything else. That's what happened. And I'm, I'm wondering what comes after Kubernetes. That's something which is on my mind a lot. And I see Docker and I see Kubernetes and then I see something else. And I'd like to think on, on, on my best days that I'm working on that something else, but we'll see. We'll see when it launches and we'll see, you know, how, how the users adopt it and, and what happens afterwards. So 
but that is a topic for a different day for sure. So when it comes to Docker Swarm, what are the good memories that you have from the time mm -hmm. that you spend working on it? Maybe something that's memorable even to this day, something that you're proud of, something that, you know, you all, it always makes you smile. Do you have a couple of those things? I have a ton of fun memories with Swarm. I, I spent, I think overall, probably over three years working working on that at first. Mm -hmm. At first it was uh, with my coworker, uh, Victor Vieux. It was just uh, the two of us at, at the very beginning. And yeah, I have a bunch of memories like uh, going to all these conferences and meetups and getting like a ton of questions and excitement. Like people were excited mm -hmm. because we were answering like a problem they had. But I guess my fondest memory must be like 2016 when we introduced Docker Swarm. And mm -hmm. it was hard. It, it was especially hard because we were trying to make something simple. And to make it simple, you know, we had to pull in every team working at Docker to, to make it happen. So, you know, we wanted, we had a few, you know, core goals for Swarm. One was to be simple. So with a bunch of help with draft and consensus and stuff like that. The other one was to be secure by default. So the, the security team helped us a lot with, you know, mutual TLS and, and things like that. We needed a bunch of help from networking to do multi-host networking. Also, suddenly everything that used to work fine in single machine was completely broken. Like the volumes API, you know, Docker volume create that cool works with one machine, but now we need plugins mm -hmm. or even the engine itself, you know, since it could now it could optionally run an extra process. Like we had to, to change it. So we ended up having like the entire company. Basically, all the teams working in a way or another inside the project. And that was really, really fun to see. Yeah, nice. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, Docker, it was like such a craze when it first came, like the first couple of years. And then there was like all these things, like the additive nature of like the various things that you mentioned. And then Swarm came along. I remember that uh, there was a point where I just I couldn't keep track of all the things that, that were happening. There was like so much from coming from the Docker ecosystem. That was quite the sight to behold, like even like on the receiving end was overwhelming just to see how many things were happening and how quickly they were happening. Some very big challenges for sure. Is something that you would have done differently knowing what you know today? Honestly, I don't think so. I think we did what we did with the information we had at the time. And again, mm -hmm. I think like the ecosystem was entirely different back then, you know, like containers were a, a shiny new thing. People didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, people were still running like VMs with like shell scripts at boot time to kind of configure dependencies or cloning That's like happens uh, AMI. Today. <laughs> yeah. Hasn't changed much. <laughs> yeah. But right now it's kind of niche to do that. Whereas before there was standard, like by default, like you would clone AMIs, you know, manage AMIs. There were actually a few cool tools from Ashikov, like Packer to mm -hmm. actually create like your AMIs with more programmatically. But I think given the information we had, like that's the best we could do. So I'd probably do exactly the same thing. So as we prepare to wrap up, what would you say is the most important thing for, for Tyler as he's considering whether to go Docker Swarm or whether he should bite the bullet and go for Kubernetes? What would you tell him? I would say to Tyler to look at your requirements and what you're trying to achieve. And I would suggest to, unless it's part, you know, you have some special requirements, I would strongly suggest to go towards a managed service. Doesn't need to be Kubernetes, can be like ECS or CloudBrun or Lambda or 
depends on you know what kind of payloads you want to run but mm -hmm. i would advise against you know running machines and getting paid for machines i think in you know in 2022 now like there's there's no need to be to be paged in the middle of the night because a machine went down so i would you know suggest yes to maybe if you find kubernetes to be a little bit too hard to learn i would ask like what are you trying you know what kind of payload are you trying to run and if it's a simple web service maybe you could consider like a google cloud run or you know fargate or you know mm -hmm. there's many other services than than kubernetes but the suggestion is the same is to look for something managed and not to worry about machines that's a very good point and even if you have to use a platform as a service these days whether it's heroku whether it's fly.io whether it's something else it doesn't really matter you know maybe that's enough maybe that's all you need if all you're trying to do is run some images and you have a database and that's about it okay Andrea, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me. Tyler, I hope this was helpful for you. And if you have any follow-up questions, drop them in the comments. There will be a lot of links in the show notes. Uh, enjoy some talks from 2015, 2016. Uh, some slides from Andrea. Some of, them, some of them are really, really good, by the way. Yeah, see you around, Tyler. And thank you again very much, Andrea, for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship. Check out our other podcasts for developers, changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers from all over the world via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Submit. That's it for this week. See you all next week. My last thing for today is to mention that Andrea is the first guest in the history of Shibbert to have two back-to-back -back episodes. Next week in episode 48, we'll talk with Andrea, Eric, Sam and Solomon about launching Dagger and what happens next. It's going to be great.